Welcome to IVF Tales, a podcast hoping to make the world of fertility treatment less lonely. We want to start conversations about different fertility journeys to empower your decisions and build a community that understands. Each week we will speak to someone whose journey to having a child has taken a little bit more than a few vodka cruises. We are your hosts, Tiffany and Amy. Hey guys, um, welcome to this episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, today we're talking to Shannon, who is a member of the Defence Force. Who a, a member. A member? Of the Defence Force. I don't know, it just, yeah. Sounds funny. A card-holding member. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. A like employee. Yeah, like what? what do you, how do you define that? It's odd. I never even thought about it until that point. Remember? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Google. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so today Shannon walks us through her four stim cycles and she's currently on her fifth one. Um, she has a pregnancy and miscarries that pregnancy uh, quite early on. She discusses that. Uh, she also discusses the uh, what can sometimes happen in these situations, I suppose, where your fertility specialist or your doctor isn't listening to your concerns or maybe being as informative as what you need. and Which is something that we're noticing a lot with. Like, are yeah. you picking up on that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, a lot of women or people are going in and saying what more can we do, or why is this not working, or whatever, and their doctors are like, "Mm, you're sweet, off your trot. Yeah, and I think we're hearing like, oh, you're young, everything's fine, when it's obviously not, otherwise you wouldn't be there. Exactly. And I think like we're conditioned to believe that doctors have our best interests at heart Mm -hmm. and that they have the education, so we just go along with it when maybe that's not always the right way. Yeah. I think we, we're we not told to question authority, you know, always respect mm. your elders and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And, like, I, I can understand that. But when it comes to your body, that's just something, like, you need to know what's going on. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that was a really big thing with Shannon's story. And she also goes into depth about the Defence Force and what it's like to undergo IVF treatment in the Defence Force. Um, you know, obviously Defence is heavily dominated by men and mm-hmm. masculinity. Um, so she found that a bit challenging. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we hope you enjoy listening to today's episode. All right, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on IVF Tales today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, if you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, so your name and um, where you're located and what you do with yourself. Okay, uh, my name is Shannon. I'm 27 and I am in the Defence Force and I live in Pakapanyol, in, uh, which is a little town about an hour north of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I'm originally from North Queensland, so I originally came from Townsville in North Queensland. You know, is that this, the Pakapanya, is that the town from the song? That, um, yeah. yeah, that's that. Yeah. What is that song when I was 19 or something? Or I was only 19? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's it. As soon as you said that, I was like, I know that song. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, 
So would you like to get started um, with your fertility story? Yeah. So when I was 20 years old, I decided that I would just go have an all-rounder blood test done, like a blood test done of everything that you could possibly find. And I also started noticing my uh, stomach getting larger. Like I, by the week, I was rec- I was recording and videoing my stomach getting larger. And I went to the doctors and and they found a really large cyst in my stomach. And it was really odd because when I had the ultrasound, the sonographer said, oh, you know, that doesn't look right. And she kind of never said anything more. She just said, oh, that doesn't look right. And then never said anything. So I went straight back to the doctor because I was then worried. Um, And the doctor's like, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with the ultrasound. They must have just stuffed it up. It looks really zoomed in. Um, And then he said he'd give me a call if there was anything wrong on the report. And the report came back and I had a really big endometrial cyst on one of my ovaries. Um, They originally thought it was the size of an orange. And I then was referred to a specialist in Townsville and the specialist then confirmed it was a large cyst and needed to come out straight away. Um, I was at risk of my um, ovary twisting and causing lots of damage and things like that. So I then... Um, went into for surgery the following week. It was my first ever surgery. I was only 20, didn't know kind of, they didn't mention what was going to have an impact on my fertility or anything like that. And my partner at the time, we were still only, you know, a couple of years together. We were just, you know, a couple of years out of high school. We weren't, didn't have any big plans at that stage. So it was very uh, new. The fertility world was very new at that stage. We, nothing was really mentioned. Um, because I was so young. And when I had the surgery, they ended up finding the cyst to be the size of a football, not an orange. Oh, my so goodness. it was a huge cyst. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that meant that my ovary and my, um, my tube were just in pieces everywhere. So obviously your ovary is the size of an almond and, and, this, and this just was inside my ovary the size of a football. So my, my ovary was literally in pieces um, and same with my tube as well. So obviously that all got removed and I went on with life without one ovary. Um, and at that stage, the specialist has said, look, um, because we've taken an ovary, you're going to either have trouble having a baby or you might fall pregnant really, really quickly because you've just had everything kind of cleaned out type thing. Everything, something's happened and everything's cleaned out, you might fall pregnant really quickly. Um, so then my, my partner and I at the time decided, oh, you know, this is a kind of a big move. We've only been together for, say, three years, four years. And we thought, oh, we'll, we'll give it a try and see what happens. Um, two years on, nothing happened. I then went back to a different specialist and that specialist then put me on, um, I had ovulation tracking at, at first. They were tracking my temperature, they were tracking and doing our ovulation testing, but that was about it. That was the basic just to see if I was ovulating at all. I was on no medication, no nothing at that stage, no supplements. Um, this was all in Townsville. And then... Uh, Obviously, we found out that I wasn't ovulating properly. Um, and I don't know whether that was because 
um, of the one ovary or anything like that. They were testing for polycystic ovarian syndrome at that time, but they never could pinpoint exactly if I had polycystic ovarian syndrome or not. I was very asymptomatic. The ultrasound showed I had lots of follicles, um, but then I didn't have symptoms, so I didn't get the, the typical symptoms of someone who has polycystic ovarian syndrome. So they've kind of put it down to just being polycystic, uh, having a polycystic ovary and not having the syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they put me on climate, um, which obviously helps with ovulation, makes you ovulate and things like that. So that didn't work. I was on that for about three months and nothing happened. I still didn't ovulate. And uh, we stopped that. And my partner and I said, you know, we started talking about whether or not we would go down the path of IVF or have more investigations done. At that time, we were really young. We both were, um, you know, still finishing apprenticeships and and I wasn't in the army. I hadn't joined the army at this stage. Um, we, were just bu- we were just buying a house and, and things like that. So we weren't financially ready, I think, to take on more investigations and IVF at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and I think the trying for a baby and it failing and doing all that we can at that stage, my partner and I at the time, it really put a big wedge in between us. Mm-hmm. And that's where my partner and I um, decided to end things. Mm-hmm. So, at that stage in my life, I was obviously single and moved into my own apartment. And, you know, I always had the thought in the back of my mind, you know, oh, you know, I need to hurry up and have children. You know, I, it's obviously not working for me. There's obviously something wrong. You know, what if it doesn't work, work the first time if I ever do IVF or. A lot of things playing through my mind at that stage. You know, I was 20, I think I was 23, 24 at that stage. Yeah. So I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Am I ever going to have children? And I kind of just went about my business and, you know, wasn't actively looking for a partner or a new a new person at the time. Um, but I then decided, I was a, before joining the army, I was a hairdresser. So... Um, working full time, I had also started studying, and I was about a year into my education degree, so um, doing my own thing. Um, but then I got very bored. I was bored with hairdressing. I didn't want to study anymore, so I decided to join the army. And I thought, you know what, this is going to give me, you know, change my life, and my lifestyle is going to change, and hopefully give me. Um, a better outlook on life, you know, hopefully meet some new people, um, move around Australia. So I went and joined the army as a truck driver. And whilst being in the Defence Force, I met my partner that I am with still to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and his name's Bodie. And he um, is also in the Defence Force. And we're both obviously living in Pakapanyol. Um, and before I said, I guess, said yes <laughs> to to um, starting a new relationship, I did mention to him, I did say, look, um, before we get any more serious, I need to, to tell you that I have had trouble in the past 
with having children. So I don't, I know it's a very daunting thing to be told before you even start dating someone that they can't have children, but I don't want him to feel um, like he was trapped. Um, and that was a pretty, pretty scary conversation I had to have with him. Um, and especially, obviously, being in the Defence Force, that's another um, issue in itself um, with the moving and, and the medical system and the way it works, but we can, I'll, I'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he was, and up to my surprise, he was very accepting and very welcoming with the fact that I was going to be in further. He said, you know, if we never have children... Um, as long as I have you, I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's really <laughs> um, sweet. Yeah, very sweet. Um, so and he's been really, really supportive, obviously, so far. And I kind of said to him, I'm like, look, the, the doctor had given me, the specialist that I was seeing in Townsville had given me a time limit. And he said, because you only have one ovary, um, I never really researched this, so I've never really had kind of any anyone else tell me this, but it kind of always stuck with me that, you know, by the time I reach 30, um, chances chances are going to be very, very slim at that stage. So me being 24, 25 at this stage, I was like, you know, uh, I've got to get moving. If I want to have more than one child, mm-hmm. you know, it might take, might take years and years and years to conceive the first one. And then, you know, you have, you have your pregnancy. That's almost, you know, in nine months there's, you know, years and years gone by. I'm just, I was really worried. So I said to my Bodhi, I said, oh, you know, when did you want to start trying to have a child if that's what, if you're comfortable and if you're sure about this and, you know, um, I know we're not married or not engaged or not committed in that kind of way. He said, I wanted a child for a long time, which is finding the right person and I think you're the right person. So mm-hmm. we started trying. Um, we tried for a year and obviously nothing happened. Um, I was hoping maybe a change of lifestyle and, you know, I lost a lot of weight when I joined the, joined the army. I lost 30 kilos. So I thought maybe that would have a dif- uh, difference. Yeah. Um, and it didn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously. So, and at that stage, so when you um, join the Defence Force, you go through training, obviously you do, you do three months of your basic training and that's where um, all your privileges uh, of the outside world are taken away from you. You know, you shared dorms with people. You don't have your phone and you're separated from your partner and, and, and things like that. And then you move on to um, your employment training, which is your trade. So your specific trade in the army, um, you do the training for that trade. Uh, so once I had been in the army, after all the training, I was, it was, I'd been in the army for about, oh, about eight months. Or close to a year yeah. before that, um, Bodhi and I could live together and start um, seeing specialists about having a, a baby because you know being in training and being distanced is not going to work if you're trying to have a baby. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So um, we went to the doctor and I said, "Look, this is what's happened before I joined the army. This is what happened in Townsville. Um, obviously, it didn't work. Didn't work out with that partner." Um, with my partner and I have now decided that we want to start trying. Um, so she thought, um, she referred me to um, a gynecologist to begin with. And so in the Defence Force, we have to see um, not army, they're not army doctors, they are uh, civilian contracted 
uh, doctors that work on the army base in uh, a health center that is located on the army base, mm-hmm. and they deal with all our referrals. Um, we don't really get to choose what specialists we get to see. Um, they have a contract through um, Bupa, who have allocated doctors under that contract. Mm-hmm. So in every in every uh, specialty, I guess they have a certain amount of doctors that are contracted to defence and have guidelines they have to follow um, and get and get paid obviously through through Bupa. So I'm really really lucky. I don't have to pay for any of my doctor's appointments, specialist appointments, travel, um, ultrasounds, blood tests. That all comes through the Defence Force. Mm-hmm. It's one perk of being in the Defence Force. We get all of our medical taken care of. Um, but I was positive that IVF, that something I would, within IVF, I would have to pay for. I'm like, surely the Defence Force doesn't cover IVF. That's a, it's a big thing um, for them to cover. So before joining, I'm going to go back now, before joining the Defence Force, they don't test for infertility or or anything like that. So you do lots of medicals and things like that before you join, but they don't test for infertility or um, reproductive problems or anything like that. So you do have to mention the surgeries you have. So I obviously had to mention my um, laparoscopy where they took the, the cyst out, but mm-hmm. um, nothing really, really came of it. That was all fine. Um, so... When I mentioned to the doctor I was having trouble and she referred me to a gynecologist in um, Bandora in Melbourne, I went to see him and he sent me um, to do some tests, uh, obviously progesterone tests and, and, and blood tests and ultrasounds just to see what was going on at that stage. I ha- at this stage, I hadn't had any testing since before joining the Army since I was about 24 and I was about 26 at this stage. So this was about a year ago. Um, and we found that my progesterone was super low, so which would indicate which indicated to him that I wasn't ovulating at all, mm-hmm. which kind of confirmed what happened years ago um, when I was a lot younger. It was a lot harder for me to understand when I was younger. I hadn't researched it enough, and I really didn't have um, I wasn't really educated on the subject when I was younger. Obviously, now I was I'm, I'm way more educated and. And, and I researched and I'm kind of my, my own advocate um, in a way. So after that, he then said, look, I think you're going to have to see um, an IVF specialist. And I really pushed to see an IVF specialist at this stage. I said, look, I don't, I really want to go down the IVF path. I don't think it's going to happen through climate. I don't want to go through all those loops again that I did uh, in Townsville. I was really firm um, with the specialist. I didn't want to have to do you know, six months of climate again to only have it fail. I was, you know, I was afraid that my time was running out. So uh, I really wanted that to push for IVF. So I then got referred to, obviously, um, in the Defence Force, I call them on referrals. They have to refer me to the doctor they contracted with or the specialist that they contracted with or the clinic that they contracted with. So my first... Um, I guess experience with IVF um, was with a clinic in Melbourne City mm-hmm. and I obviously had to get the original bloods and every, everything done and at this stage um, 
I forgot to mention my thyroid issue, but my thyroid at this stage, I've been on thyroid medication for um, since I was since I was 20, actually, when they did that big um, blood test when they before they found the cyst that they took out, they also found that my thyroid was underactive, but only just. It was only just underactive. It was borderline okay. Mm-hmm. So they put me on a really super duper low dose of thyroxine. Um, it was 25, I think, micrograms it is, um, rather than the normal 50. Uh, so I was on that. I've been on that since I was 20 years old. Um, and my first specialist, when I seen him in Melbourne for IVF, he obviously had all my blood results. We did the thyroid. We did the big workup at the beginning of IVF that um, everyone has to have. So um, he had all the results for that. And obviously my partner had to go and do his um, sample as well. And his sample came back fantastic. He's above average for in, in every possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was nothing wrong with him, and he was very proud of that. They always are. Proud. They always <laughs> are. <laughs> yeah. So he, yeah, he was, he still tells people he has, you know, <laughs> awesome sperm and, you know, superhuman <laughs> sperm, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so at that stage, we started on a low-dose IVF cycle and all medication and all expenses were paid by the defense force which was amazing i i think i studied the defense health manual 10 times you know studied it intricately to find something that i had to cover my own myself because obviously in the defense force we don't have medicare so because all of our all of our medicals covered, so we don't. There's no need for Medicare for us. So mm-hmm. I had to find a loophole somewhere where I would have to pay for some sort of of procedure or hospital ad- admission fees or something. But no, everything was paid for. So we were really lucky. Yeah. Um, I was very, I was very hesitant because I wanted to be financially ready. You know, I didn't want to go into this and have the stress of trying to, you know, scrape money from from somewhere so uh, we were really lucky with my first cycle um the specialist really didn't mention anything about my thyroid at that stage he said everything was under control he didn't really go over my blood test results um in detail he obviously didn't ever tell me my uh amh levels or or my thyroid levels at that stage because I'd only I'd been on this medication, this thyroid medication for at this stage six years. So, mm-hmm. and I didn't really have it tested in between, in between then. So it, it would have been interesting to know um, at that stage what they were. Yeah. At that stage, I didn't know that having a stable thyroid is important during IVF and during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how big of an impact it would have. Um, so yeah, I didn't really get my blood test um, results at all from my GP or my specialist. So I didn't think I needed to have them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I trusted the specialist. And I was obviously very new to the IVF process at this stage, and we went ahead and did a. Um, it was very low dose at the start because we obviously had the polycystic ovarian syndrome risk, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't 
properly diagnosed, there was still that risk that I would have uh, a lot of a lot of follicles and then be susceptible to ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So that was another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started on low dosages, and at my first scan, so we obviously were on we were on uh, gonal F or galliotran, and then we had the ovidrel trigger. So not not a lot of medication. The only supplement I was told to take was um, Alivit. Never yeah. told to take any other supplements. He said everything else was fine. He reassured me that I was young and I'd have I'd have enough eggs and my eggs should be good quality because I'm young. And obviously Bodhi had no problems. So we shouldn't really have – he assured me at that stage, obviously gave me lots and lots of hope that we should we should be pregnant in the first two cycles. Yeah. So we went in my first scan and we only found, I think it was five follicles. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so only five at that stage. And I was only on a low dose of the stimulating uh, hormone. I think it was only like 150. So it was really, it wasn't a big dosage. But obviously, again, we were scared of being overstimulated. Yeah. Then, um, so we continued. So we just, he increased it slightly. I think he increased it to 225 for the next coming days. And then he did another scan and it was the same amount of follicles, but they were more mature mm-hmm. at that stage. So we went ahead and went into our egg collection procedure. And I was really nervous at that stage because uh, previous surgeries, I don't really do well with anesthetic. Mm-hmm. I get very, very sick. Um, and we had that done at a little small hospital in Melbourne. Um, we obviously have to travel an hour and a half to go to our specialist appointment from Pakapanyal into Melbourne. It's an hour and a half every time we have to go in. Uh, so that takes it out of us a little bit, the travelling. Um, it's exhausting. It, it's a whole day thing. It's not, we have to take the whole day off work and then it obviously impacts our job. And yeah. um, we have to rely on others to replace us while we are gone. So uh, during that, there's a couple of weeks where you're getting ultrasounds, you're getting medication and you're going to have your procedure done. Then you're back a couple of days later to have the transfer. Um, we're away from work for a long time and in the defence forces, we have to rely on others to, to take off our position and that doesn't leave a nice taste in a lot of people's mouths considering that not a lot of people understand the process and, and the mental exhaustion, the physical exhaustion of going through um, IVF, it's hard to explain that to to people that you work with who are um, considered to be, you know, the soldiers are strong, you know, we're all strong, we're all strong people. That's, you know, we, we don't have a lot of medical problems, but when it comes to fertility, it's not something that's spoken about, um, or infertility, I, I should say, in, in the Defence Force largely. So when we're gone a lot for IVF, people don't really understand and they can't, you know, we're not sick. But, you know, we don't look sick anyway. So we get a lot of uh, backlash for that. Back to my cycle. We went into um, egg collection. We're both really, really, really excited. I'm like, oh, you know, I'd like to have, even though we only have five follicles, hopefully we'd have five eggs. Um, I was a little bit disappointed at the first gang, you know, only five, considering I was supposed to have polycystic ovarian syndrome or, you know, uh, every follicle before having the 
stimulation, I'd have, you know, 15 to 20. Um, it was a bit odd that I only have five. Um, so we went in, had the egg collection done, and the specialist wrote the number of eggs that we collected on my hand. And I looked at my hand instantly, and we only got two eggs mm. out of that out of that cycle. So that was, and I instantly just burst into tears. I was only just coming, um, I was only just coming out of the anaesthetic, and I was really upset. And Bodhi had made it back to the hospital um, from his sample collection yet, so um, I was kind of just sitting in recovery, crying. And, and I had a, a really lovely guy, a little nurse, he was sitting with me and he was, you know, reassuring me, you know, it's only the first go, you know, those two eggs might be the only one type thing. Mm-hmm. So he was really, really good. <laughs> he was trying to calm me down and that was really lovely. Mm-hmm. I never, I'll probably never forget him actually. And when I told Bodie, the look of disappointment on his face was just heartbreaking. Um, but anyway, we moved on with our... Um, went home and we got the call the next day to say only one out of those two eggs had fertilised. Um, so we went back in for a day three transfer mm-hmm. um, and had that transferred. Um, and unfortunately, two weeks later, I got my period. Mm-hmm. So that has failed. Yeah. Um, and we started our next cycle on that period went straight into the next one. I was very keen to, to do another one. Um, and when I had the appointment with my specialist, he really didn't um, – I asked him, you know, what do we do different this time? Do I need to take anything? Do I need to be eating differently? Do I need – you know, I've done all this research at this stage. You know, obviously it's failed, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do some research as to what I can be doing to make this uh, this round a lot better. Um, he kind of gave me nothing. He said, no, you're doing everything right. You just take Elevate. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is fine. Your blood results are fine. Um, he never told me or showed me my blood results, but everything, you know, he said everything was fine and that I should, um, hopefully, if this cycle should be better, he'll increase my dosages on my medication. So he didn't change my medication other than increasing um, the dosages. Yeah. I think then we went up to uh, 450 or 300. I think it was 300 of gonal F. Yeah. Um, wow. So he doubled. He doubled the yeah, medication. He doubled it. Wow. Which I thought, you know, yes, he's doubled it. We're going to, we'll get, we'll get a few, you know, this time. Mm-hmm. My biggest, my biggest um, thing has been getting enough eggs. <laughs> Obviously, from the first one, having only two, that was a bit devastating. Yeah. So this round we're all the same thing. Travelling in and out every every couple of days to Melbourne and we stay in Melbourne the night before we have egg collection because um we just don't want to drive that early in the morning to get to the hospital on time. So we stay in Melbourne. We have this thing where we try a different hotel in Melbourne every single time. So um if you ever need recommendations I can <laughs> um, let you know. <laughs> um and we went to into egg collection again and I was very sick coming out of this egg collection. I think um, when I mentioned to the anaesthetist that I um, am super sick after an anaesthetic, he, I think he paid it off a little bit, didn't bother putting any of the anonausea mm-hmm. um, medication in my anaesthetic like normal um, and I was super sick. I was vomiting for hours after my egg collection. 
Wow. And then obviously we have to drive home, so I'm vomiting in the car oh. all the way home. Yeah, it was not a, a nice time. But this time we managed to get four eggs mm-hmm. out of this cycle. So we had a few more follicles in the scans, um, you know, 10 follicles, say, but we only got four eggs out of those follicles. Um, and on that round, we got the phone call the next day to say none had fertilised. Oh, you poor darling. So, yeah, yeah that, was, that was pretty pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. I was like, how does, how does four not fertilise, you know? Um, I just don't know what, how that can happen. It's, it, I think it's like a one in a 3% chance that happens. And, and we were in that 3%. I was like, how? How is none fertilised when, when, when my partner's sperm is supposed to be, you know, super sperm? And, and he keeps reassuring me that my eggs are good quality. And the embryologists, when they come out and before you do the transfer and they say, oh, you know, your eggs are good, um, everything looks perfect. But then you look at your, your photo of the egg they give you and then you look at the photo up on the wall that has the perfect day three eight cells embryo and you're like, this looks nothing like that. How can you say that this is a good embryo? Um, that kind of, you, you, you Google and you search other people's photos and it just doesn't look the same you kind of have to wonder why are they giving you hope type thing when there is not i'd rather them hurt me with the truth than than comfort me with a lie yeah i think that massive um especially with specialists and embryologists and everything i'd rather them hurt me with the truth than yeah comfort me with a lie i don't want to be comforted with false hope um anyway so we were pretty devastated after that, Bodhi is a super, super positive person. I've never met a more happy person in my life. He probably was hurting on the inside. I was very obviously hurting on the outside, but he keeps it all, and I think he he stays strong for, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very lucky. And someone once told me that people are just born happy, and I think he was just born happy. Mm-hmm. So he's been really good the entire time. He, can't, he doesn't really show, um, at, well, at this stage, he hadn't showed any kind of grief or grieving, even though he may have done it privately. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but in front of me, he never. So, um, which I think I needed. If I had someone who was a mess and I was a mess, I don't think we would ever have moved on. Mm-hmm. So um, we went straight into our third cycle. After that, this all happened like, within... We were doing cycle, uh, back-to-back cycles. Um, and I went back into my specialist and I said, look, this is, you know, two rounds and none fertilised last round. What, what's, what's going on? What's happening? And I got the same response. You know, oh, nothing. You're doing everything right. Everything's fine. You're just, you're young. Your eggs are good quality. We don't, we just have to keep going. But he kind of gave me no solution other than to increase my medication again. And so, like, he didn't offer... Have you put any additional testing or yeah, no, no, no nothing no. to meet with a nutritionist or no, absolutely nothing. Wow. So at this stage, I had um, obviously joined a lot of IVF forums on 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 Facebook, mm-hmm. and I followed a lot of people on Instagram and and um, asked questions on 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 the Facebook pages and the Facebook groups because I needed to do some research on my own to ask him. I need to ask him for specific testing because I'm like, surely something is not working. Yeah. And I need to know what, what, what it is. And so obviously 
by asking questions, I, I found out about natural killer cell testing and, and, and DHEA testing and all these extra testing. So, and when I brought that up with him, and I brought it up on the third cycle, I said, look, should we be doing these testing? This hasn't been done. And he's like, no, no need for that. You're young. You won't have any problems. Like that was his, that was his answer to everything. You're young. Your eggs are good. You'll be fine. Mm. So he's not, I, he wasn't know, listening to you at all and not taking any feedback from his patient. No, yeah. Mm. And um, so I kind of, and with the Defence Force, because we don't get to choose our specialist. Um, I mean, I could choose my specialist, but then um, I would have to obviously pay. And at that stage, I was just, you know, wanting anything. Mm-hmm. Anything better than what was happening. Um, but, and I spoke to my health um, health centre on base. I said, "Look, I don't know. I don't know how I feel um, about this specialist. Is there another one that we can send a referral to?" Um, and they said, "Oh, look, there's only one other um, in in Melbourne that's contracted to defence. So, um, do you want to get a referral to them, or do you want to keep trying?" I said, "No, I'll, for the rest of the year." It was about September at this stage, so I said, "Oh, for the rest of the year, we'll just keep." We'll just stay with the specialist, and I'll just have to, you know, be really firm with him with him next time. So at that stage, I was looking, but I wasn't committed to changing. I was giving him benefit of the doubt. I think I was, I was being very loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that stage, I hadn't kind of worried about it failing anymore. I'm like, you know, I've done two cycles. You know, I'm going to go into my third. Um, I'll just stay with him. We seem to be getting more eggs. Um, and if he says everything's fine, everything's fine. I was very naive, I think, when he says everything's fine. I'm like, okay. So went to our third cycle. Um, and this time he put, instead of, he, he kept me on the 300 of going to less, but then added menopure as well. Yeah. So that's the only difference in that cycle, if we just added that extra um, stimulating hormone. So, or hormone medication, I should say. Um, nothing else changed. He didn't want me on any more supplements, nothing. I asked him about supplements. I asked him about, you know, uh, the Q10 enzyme. I asked him about vitamin E. I asked him about fish oil. I asked him about what other things can I be taking or am I allowed to take? Um, he's like, no, Elevit's enough. And I was like, okay. So I stuck with Elevit. That's all I did. As he said, all my bloods were fine again. So... We went on with our third cycle um, and into egg collection, and this time I got six eggs. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from two to four to six. And so I'm like, okay, well, something's working. Um, and when we got the fertilization phone call the next day, we had four had fertilized. Okay. The six, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Um, and obviously we transferred the best one on day three again. Mm-hmm. My specialists like to do day three transfers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then we were very excited to possibly have some to freeze that cycle. You know, we had four fertilized, so we were like, yes, we're going to have three to freeze and I won't have to do a full stim cycle again, mm-hmm. you know, if this one fails. So... We then waited till day five 
had my transfer, waited until day five and find out none has made it past day four. Mm. Yeah. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, if this one fails, then we'll have to do another four stim. Um, so I thought if this one fails. So um, the two weeks went by and actually I don't think it was two weeks at that stage. I think it was maybe like day eight or nine and I had a little bit of a bleed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is a little early. Like my my periods are very very regular, so to the morning to the hour regular. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm really lucky. I don't have any period problems. I don't have any pain with my periods. I don't have endometriosis. I don't have anything else wrong. There's nothing wrong with my periods. They're very 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 normal. Um, but I had a little bit of bleeding, and I'm like, oh, this is a bit odd. Maybe it's you know what's going on. And it was it kind of lasted a few days. And I then, I had an engagement party. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you know, I really want to have a few drinks. Um, I don't think, I think I'm getting my period. So I don't think I'm pregnant, but I'm, you know, just in case I'll do a pregnancy test at home. And to my surprise, it was positive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> rang, rang my partner show. I was like, Bodie, you'd never guess what's happened. Um, so I then bought a million other tests and kept testing um, for the for the next coming days. Yeah, I think I had I used over twenty pregnancy tests. I think because I just wasn't convinced. I think um, and beta day came around, and my beta was only um, a hundred and thirty five. Mm-hmm. So it was still over what they wanted it to be over, but wasn't super high. Even though my pregnancy tests were um, very strong, strong lines on my pregnancy tests. Uh, then I was a little concerned. That the nurse had then told me, you know, it, it's still low, like still have some, still be reserved with your excitement. Um, you, you don't want to be heartbroken, blah, blah, blah. And then I did another test two days later. So they were doing, instead of every three days, they were doing every two days, mm-hmm. two-day betas. And it had only gone up to, I think, 225. So it hadn't exactly doubled. Um, and then the third test, it had only gone up to, I think, 250. So the nurse had then said, expect um, a miscarriage or your period to come or... Um, the number or your next blood test to be lower again, like you expect it to start coming down now. Um, I was like, okay, no worries. That's fine. Were they thinking it was a chemical pregnancy, were they? Yeah, I think so. No one ever told me about the word, no one ever said to me chemical pregnancy, mm-hmm. ever. They just kind of, and no one kind of educated me on, on I had to, obviously I Googled a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but I would, I would think it was a chemical pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, at that stage, but my next beta come back and it has skyrocketed. So even though the numbers were low, it had then skyrocketed up to I think it was like seven hundred or something from two fifty. Mm. So still not high for at that stage because I think I was like twenty one days past at this stage. So I was a long like I was about five weeks. So I think it should have been way higher than than seven hundred. Yeah. Um, but it was still, they couldn't rule it out because it was doubling still. Um, mm. But then, so because it was 
doubling and I was, you know, getting on in weeks, they decided to do a scan at five weeks mm-hmm. and the scan showed a gestational sac. Yep. Um, but obviously it was too early to see the yolk sac. So uh, they said, come back in two weeks. Everything looks okay. It looks normal. It was normal size for um, that age, that gestational age. So I was like, okay, um, everything's looking good as far as we know. We stopped doing buds at that stage. We just relied on the ultrasound. Um, and then I had the seven-week scan, which they said, you know, we should we, we should see a heartbeat. Um, we should see the yolk. We should see everything in there that you would normally see um, on a seven-week scan. And my partner and I both went in and we sat down and we obviously we had we were both in our in our uniform and we I laid on the bed and had it all done and then the poor sonographer then had to tell me there was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing. Like I think there was a, a tiny little bit of the gestational sac still there. Um, so that had he suggested that at that five week scan it was probably at its peak and then from there has um slowly deteriorated mm-hmm. um, so obviously because there was still some gestational sac left um, I was still testing positive on pregnancy tests and still um, my body was still ha- producing HCG yeah. um, and at this stage I called my specialist but he was in China he'd taken his family on holiday to China yeah um, so I was then referred to um, an, a, a different specialist and she rang me um, and explains, you know, in the coming days, you can, you know, you'll probably have passed it naturally. Um, and reassured me that if it doesn't pass, then in a, in a couple of days' time, then you'll have to have a DNC and everything like that. I was really lucky everything happened at home. I kind of wanted it to happen that way. I wanted to be able to grieve and process it in the privacy of my own home and not be. In, in a strange bed in a strange hospital with people I don't know. Um, so I was really glad that ha- it happened that way. Um, that pregnancy and that miscarriage probably took the biggest toll on my mental health the most out of all the three. Mm-hmm. So the first two failing, yes, I was upset, but I kind of moved on and had a little bit more hope. But then falling pregnant and having my first ever positive pregnancy test took a huge part of me I think um I was devastated I couldn't I think I had a week off work I think after after that because I just couldn't cope with um with going to work and having to explain why I'm not okay um and in the defense force obviously we have a lot of physical expectations in our day-to-day job you know, we have to do PT every day, which is intense PT, which is like an, a hit session times 10 type thing. Yeah. And um, obviously when I found out I was pregnant, uh, that all stopped mm. um, because we were so, it was such a vulnerable um, start to the pregnancy, I guess. Everything kind of slowed down and I had to explain to, I had to explain to my bosses that I couldn't do these things that they were expecting of me because I was pregnant and it was very early. Um, so then having to go back to work and tell them that the pregnancy failed was like heart-wrenching. It was really hard to even get those words out and tell these these people that I, I 
lost my pregnancy type thing, that was really, really hard. Um, and it's something you kind of can't avoid in, in, in my job because you you do lots of physical stuff. We lift a lot of heavy stuff. I You know, I, when we drive trucks or we, we carry stores or everything, it's heavy. It's, you know, lifting tr- truck tires and, and lifting big pallets and, and getting on machinery that you're not allowed to use while pregnant. Mm. Um, so I had to tell people that I couldn't do these things because of um, what had happened. Um, so that was really hard to go back and say, yeah, hey, I, I could, you know, this has happened and I don't, I'm not okay. And I worked by myself in a little office, so it was really, um, that was made it a little bit easier to go back to work. I didn't have to say a lot of people um, in in my off, in, in that space. So I kind of had my own time, which was good. Um, but I had trouble with some of the men I worked with when I said, you know, I can't be standing in the, you know, out on the parade ground at attention, marching you know, something my feet around a parade ground in the sun for two hours, like it's just not going to be good. And I had, I was actually had a chest infection at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and then, you know, the bleeding started happening, you know, a, a couple of days after that, you know, even though the doctor had said I can't be in this, you know, I can't be, I'm not doing any kind of drill or marching or any of the heavy stuff. And um, I was made to by one of the men at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of led to it, and that I held a grudge against him for a long time because I was like, you know what? What if I had not been made to do that 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 that, that parade, you know? Or what if I was made not? What if I didn't lift that item, or what if I didn't do those things at work? Would it have succeeded? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that played in my mind the whole time so I've had to be really transparent with work because I don't want it to happen again I don't want to go through another cycle and then have them demand things of me that I physically can't do but then I'm too afraid to say I can't do it mm-hmm. because of the repercussions if I say no yeah obviously um in the defense books where we can't be insubordinate to people who are um, in, a, in a higher role um we kind of have to do what we're told type thing that's that's our job um, and there's a reason that the army is like that and being in the defence force is like that. Um, so it's really hard to kind of say, hey, no, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for certain, obviously, being in, in a male-dominated um, industry, it's really hard to say no to men as well when they don't understand it at all. Yeah, that was they, they don't go. That was going to be my question, yeah. was how, like, do yeah. you think it's got a lot to do with the fact that it's very male-dominated and there's no sort of common understanding of fertility in general, really? Like, a lot of people don't understand what it actually takes to make a child, number one, but also fertility treatment, number two. Yeah, so it's trying to explain it to, to, to a man is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> a man who has never had never had to experience infertility or the infertility world um, and then having to explain to them hey I'm it's an IVF pregnancy it's not just a normal pregnancy either Um, so the emotions are high to begin with Mm -hmm. Um, and and 
my job, I guess, is a really high stress stress job. Um, probably there's a lot of lot of jobs are high stress, but um, having that, yeah, being a female in a male dominated industry and having to yeah sort of explain to to men that I can't do things um, as a soldier first, not as not as a female in the army, as a soldier first. Um, you're obviously as a female in the army, you're expected to meet the male requirements as well. So you're expected to be equal to them um, in the defence force. So when I say I can't do something because of I'm pregnant or, or I'm going through IVF and it's all limited and I can't, you know, go and do crazy exercise or crazy um, tasks. And they go, and, and you're perceived you're perceived then as weak, because you're not you don't look sick or you don't look injured. Um, and if you choose not to say that you're pregnant and you just say, oh, I can't because I've got a, my doctor's given me a certificate, and they say, yeah, well, that's just advice. That's not that's not um, you know the rules. Mm-hmm. That's just a guideline of what we have to follow and how we have to treat you. That's not the rules. So that's the kind of response I get when I say I can't do something, and then they say, oh, well, that's just advice. You can still do it. It's like, well. Where, where do I go from there? What do I say to that, back to that? Yeah. Did you, you know? apart, like, you know, just when you were actually going through IVF, because I know that people worry too, like doctors worry um, when you're actually stimming mm. with doing high-intensity exercise and lifting heavy things because they worry about ovarian torsion and yeah. things like that. So were you also restricted with your, you know, exercise and things like that at that time as well or was it just for your pregnancy? Yeah, I, I I was restricted through uh, stimulation as I'm actually on stimulation right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm uh, restricted. Yeah. Through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, more so after the embryo transfer. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I also have. I happen to have hurt my back during my first round of IVF. I hurt my back doing um, a PT session, um, and I've been restricted with my exercise because of my back. So that's kind of come hand in hand with my restrictions for IVF as well. So um, I have two protruding discs in my back mm-hmm. um, from a PT session. So I have been restricted with my back, which has helped, I guess, with restricting me to um, with, with IVF as well. But if I hadn't had my back, yes, I probably, yeah, I would have been restricted the whole way through yeah. um, my IVF round. Okay. So at the moment, I... Uh, in the mornings, instead of going to do the normal PT that I would do with everyone else, yeah. I go to, we have a physio gym um, at the health centre and I go into the physio gym and I do um, some Pilates and mm-hmm. some stretching and that's about the most exercise and some walk, I get on the bike sometimes and I do a couple of days on the bike or I get on the treadmill and walk um, and that's probably the most exercise I'm that they allow me to do. Mm. Yeah. And then after the embryo transfer, um, because you you know you can't kind of raise your body temperature and you can't have hot baths and spas and you can't be you can't be warm in warm environments you can't be in like a sauna or you can't things like that so they really restrict me then to just stretching yeah. every morning instead of going to a PT session. Which I mean that's probably good for your mm. mental wellness as well going through this and being able, you know, like. Having that outlet, yeah. as well. Yeah. So if I hadn't, if I had had got the restrictions and and I wasn't going and doing this stretching and and Pilates, um, I would be going to a normal PT session where I would then have to explain 
to the person running the PT session that I can't do certain things and and that and people who don't know why I'm explaining it would look at me at a because at a PT session typically within the defence force you're expected to um, try your hardest and do the best you can the whole session you know that shows that you're not weak you're strong um, that's what you got to show your bosses I guess who do it with you um, and and that you're not um, in in layman's terms a sack we call it a sack um, so. I would have to explain to the person running the session, you know, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. And if I didn't want to tell people why, which you don't want to have to explain everything to everyone and have everyone know every little detail of your life. You know, personal life. Um, and people were just assuming that I couldn't do anything. And I, I didn't look injured. I didn't look sick. They would just look at me as if I was lazy. Yeah when in fact I had, you know, other things going on. And that's kind of the, the stigma that, that, that hangs around infertility in the Defence Force, I it's, think. sounds like, um, you know, obviously there's, there's an underlying reason for their approach to, to physical, you know, ability and things like that, but it sounds like at the same time it can be quite toxic at times as well, um, especially, yeah. especially for women, you know, who you know, in the Defence Force haven't been renowned for equality throughout history, I suppose, and, you know, we've, we've fought for that and now, you know, you're presented with this problem that, you know, very much highlights that you are different from men. Um, that must be really difficult for you to navigate at times. Yeah, super difficult to navigate. Um, yeah, like we're, we're, we've created this whole you know, women need to be equal, women are going to be equal in the Defence Force. I don't think it will ever be equal in the Defence Force as much as they try and portray it to the rest of the, of the world like that. I don't think it will ever be. Yeah. Um, and, then, yeah and then presenting, obviously, with a female a female problem, female-only problem. Yeah. And <laughs> having to explain that to to people is really hard. Obviously, there are females in the Army and they, they get it, they understand, they're really, really understanding. And I'm... Um, However, I had um, my boss from last year. It's actually changed this year, but my boss from last year, she was a the head the head honcho type thing, the the, the big boss, yeah. right at the top. Um, she was a female, and we have to sit down once a month in a welfare meeting, and they just talk about how everything that's medically wrong with you. They, they chat how you coping, do you need extra help? They do provide that extra help, um, but it doesn't stop the stigma, it doesn't stop the the judging and 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 things like that. But she had no idea what IVF was. Mm-hmm. And I, I was horrified. Because I was like, um, how, as a female, she obviously didn't, she didn't have any children. I think she chose to not have children. Yeah. Um, she was an older lady and, yeah, she kind of didn't have any sort of understanding um, of my fertility problems or IVF. And, yeah, she was very cutthroat about it um, and this year has been a little bit easier for me I've got um, a boss that is super duper family friendly um, and is in, supporting me through the IVF journey really really well but that still doesn't stop the me having to explain to every single person that I can't do something yeah. because of this problem and they say oh well you know I see plenty of pregnant people exercising I see plenty of pregnant women doing in the army you know why are you so different you know i get that i get those comments uh quite a lot Mm. which which aren't helpful 
No. To be honest. No, which is not helpful. So sex my mental health a lot. That part of that part of IVF, not IVF itself, it's the it's the work part, I think. It's, yeah. Obviously my bosses allow me to go to all the medical appointments and it's all they're all very supportive. They'll let me have the time off, you know, everything. That part is really good. Um, but it's the having to explain why I can't be equal to yep. men. Yeah. That that that's the hard part. Yeah. Um, so after that cycle, after I had, we, um, did a cycle then in, so that was September, October, halfway through November, we then went and did a cycle in, um, late November, early December. Mm -hmm. And I just had a feeling that cycle wasn't going to work from the very, from the get go. I don't think I was in it hundred percent. I was, I probably shouldn't, I should have waited. I think a little bit longer mm-hmm. to heal. Um, yeah, I wasn't committed enough, I don't think. And I knew, I just had a feeling. I just knew in my head that I, it wasn't going to work and it didn't. So, and it was kind of a little bit bittersweet because then I had some time. I could, you know, relax over Christmas. I could have a few drinks. I could get my head back in the game in the new year. And in that last cycle, I decided to change specialists. That's I started good. to go ahead and get the doctors to refer me to someone else because I was I had had it with the um, neglect, I would say. Yep. From from the other specialist. Mm-hmm. So um, January comes around and I've got my first appointment with my new specialist this year, and she I get all my blood test results printed from my GP to take to her from obviously my previous um, IVF rounds and. And I was just going through my blood test results and I noticed that my thyroid had been high the entire time. Even though I was on medication, it had been high, well and truly high, like double what it should have been um, the entire time through my cycles. And then I also... um, found out that I had a bacteria that's super duper common um, that was just living up in those areas the whole time through those cycles as well. Obviously then found out if your thyroid isn't stable, you are not going to sustain a pregnancy. Yeah. Do you mean and then that at this best Sorry, Sorry. Did, did you have a strep was it a strep infection inside your vagina or like you said, was it like a bacterial what what was what it was, was a bacterial? So it was a mycoplasma, which is um, can is a shared bacteria, okay. which I was very surprised at because my partner tested negative. So it was really, really odd that yeah. I had that kind of bacteria. Could that um, have been from like your egg pickups, transfers, things like that, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they said it can come from you know um, public toilets. It can come from, you know, yeah, egg pickup, transfers, putting things, you know, crinorine that goes yep. up there. Yep. You know, it could come from anything. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So that was treated. Um, those. Um, my new my new specialist picked up all of this actually in the very first. So I had picked it up in in the blood test results. Well, I obviously couldn't do anything about it. I just I read it. Yeah. Um, my sister's a pharmacist and her partner's a doctor, so I always text them. I'm like, what is this? What does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah, it's um, handy. And so, um, I do, and then I waited to see the specialist, and she picked it up straight away. 
um, she actually recommended that I had um, reported my old specialist for neglect mm -hmm. because she had said, you know, this should have been dealt with on your very first cycle. Yeah. She said the reason you have gone through all that suffering and all that pain and it could have been avoided. And she straight away sent me for testing for natural killer cells. I had an endometrial scratch two weeks ago. Um, I went, I'm now seeing an endocrinologist for my thyroid because no investigation was done with my thyroid. So we did an ultrasound on my thyroid. Um, they increased my dosages from 25 micrograms on the thyroxine to 200 micrograms. Wow. Oh my on goodness. The thyroxine. Yeah. Um, and then obviously did the testing to see if it had worked and now my thyroid levels are stable. Um, and I, the natural killer cells come back normal, which is awesome. Um, yeah, so just in this one appointment with this new specialist, she had done more than he had done over four cycles. How did that and make one, you feel? Like hearing this from the horse's mouth, like you had you had your suspicions, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't have changed specialists. But yeah. how did it actually make you feel hearing it confirmed? Um, I think it was like a relief more than anything. Yeah, it was a relief that something was wrong. A relief that my suspicions were right. Yeah. Um, that something was wrong. I was like, oh my god, and I, I, I started crying because I was just like, oh my god, thank goodness, thank goodness that someone has picked this up and is treating it because I don't know how many cycles I, you know, I could have possibly gone through and and had nothing done and pain and suffering, like you know, and I don't know how many more I had left in me type thing. I was mentally exhausted, so. Um, yeah, it was very, um, like, bittersweet, yeah. I guess, as well, because, um, you know, I knew I was going to get these things treated. Um, but then I was a bit upset that they, nothing had happened. Yeah, you know, And he just, just didn't bother looking at my results. Yeah. Um, we then found out my AMH levels were lower for my age, not super low. You know, they're at 10, I think, and they're supposed to be over 13 for my age. But they're not bad and you know it's not one or, or you know less than one so yeah. compared to compared to some women i guess but for my age group yeah they were a little bit low um but that could be because i've only got one ovary yeah so yeah so um i didn't know that either that was just even though there were things that didn't really matter you know that doesn't really make a difference to my cycles but she, she explained those things to me where i was never explained you know i've never ever given any sort of explanation or, or results from anything. Um, so, yeah, that was really relieving. It gave me a little bit of hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we've always, always got a little bit of hope. Um, but then I'm still very uh, reserved with my excitement. I'm, I, I don't want to get my hope up, but I don't want to fall pregnant and then have a miscarriage again and then go through that again, even mm -hmm. though it is a, a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but she then went on to explain, you know, now that your thyroid's stable, that should affect your weight. It'll affect your 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 hormones. It'll affect everything. She said it'll affect your egg quality. Um, your thyroid affects everything. 
issues like the fact that it wasn't treated through those all those cycles is um disgusting she yeah. said um and the she said to me she said you know it's not you wouldn't be reporting him because of what he's done to you or neglect that he neglected you you would be saving other women from going through it mm-hmm. you know um he's a he's practicing doctor he needs to be practicing correctly and he's not so um yeah she said you, you need to advocate advocate for other women and, and and prevent this from happening to other women yeah so yeah that's not the first case we've heard since doing this podcast where people have basically you know changed specialists and then realized the detrimental mm. you know approach to their treatment um you know and being recommended that they should be reporting the previous specialist i think people Mm. you know should be relying on their gut feelings i think yeah yeah i think yeah and i think i was super naive i think i should have educated myself more um spoke up more been a little more firm um but that's obviously the lessons i had to learn and i'm I will, you know, keep forever now, you know, every time there's something wrong and my gut feeling that there's something wrong, I will speak up about it. I think that's um, not our responsibility, though, to be honest. I think yeah. a part of it is, like, we all go in naive. We we are all exactly like that. And mm. we go in and we take what our fertility specialist says as gospel because they know, yeah. they know, they should know their shit, you know, and you trust them with that and then it's only when you come out the other side you're like okay well like I actually feel like it's on like the responsibility for our education should be actually on them and you know our treatment and I think that that you know guilt I suppose and maybe a little bit of embarrassment mixed in with that layers the fertility treatment journey because you know like you you feel you know on some level you know you not you specifically, Shannon, but everyone, you know, mm. who sort of has done this, like you sort of feel a bit silly because you don't want to ask too many questions and then when you ask the questions, you think, oh, was that a stupid question or... Yeah, that's right. You know, it's just a confusing sort of conflicting thing that you go through that no one really talks about and I think, yeah, yeah. sometimes you go in there and your specialist is busy so you don't want to take up more time than you need and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So I think that's a really important aspect. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he was uh, he was very uh, you know short and sweet. It wasn't, and I, it was really he was actually um, Russian, so it was really hard to understand him mm-hmm. at the best of times. So when I asked questions, I made I had to make sure I was clear. But I also thought sometimes he was just too busy to explain anything, which that should never ever ever you should never yeah. ever feel like that when you're in a doctor's office. They don't have time for you, like especially going through this this journey. Mm-hmm. that's not fair like this is a huge thing and it, i don't think and if they haven't been through it themselves i don't think they quite mm-hmm. understand but um he also i forgot to mention about the progesterone so obviously after a transfer when i was pregnant um i spoke to a woman on the the ivf forum about progesterone and chronone after the after having a, a positive pregnancy test and i said oh well i spoke to this lady and i said i don't she was like a wealth of knowledge. I don't know. She obviously gone through a lot of cycles. She knew a lot about IVF at this stage. And I said, oh, I don't um, produce progesterone naturally, um, but I 
just had a positive pregnancy test. I don't know if this is the right, I should be just taking one um, crinone or two crinone. And um, she said, no, 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 you should be on two. The doctor should have had you on two straight away. And then I rang the clinic and I tried to get, I tried to get a hold of him to ask if I could be on the double because if I don't produce progesterone naturally, I need to have more. And I guess there's no, you can't really overdose on, on progesterone because your body only absorbs what it needs. Um, so I was really concerned because, I was, you know, the bleeding happened and then I was like, oh, my God, is, am I bleeding? Do I need more progesterone? Type thing. And to get to get a hold of him and get that question asked took me a week. Wow. To ask, to ask if I had, been, had to in, increase my progesterone. And then the answer I finally got was, oh, yes, I forgot to, to mention to, for you to be on double. I was like, you just forgot? Yeah. <laughs> How do you just forget? That's um, um, saying something when someone on Facebook knows more about your treatment than your own specialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I hadn't asked those questions, you know, even if, if, even if the pregnancy had gone, had been successful anyway or had gone further, if I hadn't asked those questions, was I just going to, was it going to fail just because of that? You know, you don't know, but. Yeah. But, you wonder. Yeah, you just wonder. You know, so um, at this time, I when we got our medications for this, with the new specialist for this round that I'm currently on now, um, which is a lot different to what I um the previous one. So I'm on um, gonal F again, obviously high dosages of gonal F, Menopure, and Letrozole, which I've never been on before. Yeah. Um, as well as a heap of other supplements. Um. As well, so and I was on I think uh, melatonin and everything beforehand. So there's a lot different compared to um, the other cycles. So I kind of have a little bit more hope just because it's so different. And you know, I, I'm very interested, very interested to see how this will, um, how, what the results will be from this cycle and how many follicles I get. I haven't had my first scan for this cycle yet, so I'm only on I think day three of stem. Okay. So. Yeah. You'll have to keep us yeah. updated with how you go. Keep us posted yeah. with your story. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, so just sort of moving forward, um, you said that your partner was really supportive and that he, you know, earlier on in your fertility journey that he wasn't sort of, he was being strong for you. How do you think, you know, the continued IVF treatment and the miscarriage and, and things like that have has affected your relationship and relationships around you? So we've talked quite in depth about your work, but we haven't mentioned like your family or friends or anything like that. Yeah, so obviously uh, with my family being up in North Queensland, it's been really hard for them. Um, obviously, I communicate with my mom and my sisters because I have two sisters and a brother, yeah. um, and they don't have any fertility problems. They're obviously they're younger than me, so they're not at that stage in their life that they are wanting children um, just yet. But they, I've obviously recommended that they go get tested, and they've had no problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no problems in my family with infertility either. I just happen to be a lemon, I think, um, and. They've been really supportive. So every time I go to Melbourne and I have an appointment, I always call my mum on the drive home and we, we, we speak about that. Um, I'm probably closer to my family um, when it comes to talking about IVF than with my, obviously with my friends. Um, I tend to, I think, after multiple failures, I tend, I tend to distance myself from my friends. I don't, they're a lot younger than me as well. 
um, and they don't really understand. I try. I think they try. They try to understand, but because they're not in the same, I guess, same stage in life as as me, it's been hard harder for them to understand. Uh, my partner's also a lot uh, four years younger than me. I would say it's a lot younger, but he's four years younger. Um, so his friends are obviously young too. So his friends aren't at the same stage in their life either. Mm-hmm. Um, after the miscarriage. Um, or the chemical pregnancy, no one ever confirmed if it was or was not. I think I like to think of it maybe as a um, as a blighted ovum. I think I would assume it was something yeah. like that. Yeah. No one explained that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, I remember him after the ultrasound um, when they said, you know, there was no there was no baby there, um, and and the sonographer left the room. And this has stuck with me since then. Um, I think I'm really fearful for for him to say those words again. Um, but he said, like, he looked at me, and this is the first time he's kind of ever expressed any emotion or any pain or any sadness at all. And he, he turns to me and he says, you know, um, Shannon, my heart hurt. And I was like, oh. And I just burst into tears. I think if he hadn't said that, I would have been okay. But when he said that, I was just, a mess from then on and I think that stuck with me since then because you know um I always say to him I say you know you you can be with someone who is perfectly fine perfect you know is perfectly fertile and have and he says I don't want to be with anyone else you know it hasn't affected us too much um I think it has made us closer actually than yeah. anything whereas with my last relationship it, it, it put a, it drove a wedge between us, but I made sure I think um, with this relationship that I would make an effort um, to not allow it to break up. I think um, I'm very we're very dependent on each other, and I think that's very um, important when it comes to dealing with the emotions of RBS. Is that we um, he relies on me and I rely on him, so. Yeah, we're a lot closer. I would say not, not um, distant or or upset with each other, or there's no kind of problem. I guess at the moment we've been really, really good. He's been really good, um, and he's really, really helped me. And I think um, me being he always says, you know, you're so strong, but I hate the word strong. I hate it when someone says strong because then you're and my mum says that to me all the time as well. She says, oh, you're so strong. You can do it. You know, you're really, really strong. You've got a lot of strength. You know, you've been through a lot, um, you know, through your life. You can do this too. And I hate the word strong because I think then you're expected to be strong all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone says you're strong, you know, you no. Well, am I allowed to be not, you know, when am I allowed to be weak? You yeah. know, and... Um, when Bodhi says, he doesn't say that anymore. He doesn't say that I'm strong anymore. He says, you're allowed to cry. You're allowed to be upset um, and, yeah. and stuff. So, no, he's he's really good. And my friends, yeah, they try. They try really hard. Um, but I think over the last couple months, I've distanced myself from them. I think it's affected my friendships the most out of everything. Yeah, I've distanced myself because I don't. Want to have to explain to them what's going on, 
you know, they say, oh, how's IVF going? I just say, yeah, it's good. You know, I don't really go in depth like I used to um, because then I don't want to have to explain it to them over and over again, the failures over and over again. I think I'm uh, protecting myself. But then again, I need that support. So it's it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I think, when it comes to that. I think it's hard because the expectation of the education is on you and you're the one who's going through it emotionally and I think that that takes its toll on many relationships, particularly people who um, aren't, you know, they're not, I don't want to say needed, but foundational relationships mm. I'm trying to say. Like I think your, your partner and your family, you know, they're your natural support system but then your friendships are a bit different and, you know, friends can come and go. But when the expectation of educating those people is on you, you sort of just – you get to the stage where you can't be bothered anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. sort of – that's where, you know, you do sort of need people in your life, you know, friends who have been either through fertility treatment or know someone who's been through it and are a little bit more aware of it at, at that time, you know, so you don't have to be like, yeah. oh, you know, like we're doing this and this again and they're like, why don't you just stop, you know, yeah. because it's just – People don't understand why you don't just want to stop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah, you just don't want to – I just couldn't be bothered <laughs> with yeah. explaining it anymore. And, yeah, and they say, oh, you know, how much is too much? And, you know, like, you don't how – do how do you explain that to someone? Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. hard. So, um and I always, I always tell my friends, I'm like, go get tested. I know you're young, but I found out when I was young too, so go. Yeah. You know, you don't want to, you want to get 30 and, or, or over 30, 35. You know, you don't want to get 40 and, and worry. Yeah. So, you know, but your, your best eggs are in your 20s, so go and get tested. Mm-hmm. Knowledge <laughs> is power with that. Yeah. Um, so what was some of the worst advice or comments that you've received while you were undergoing IVF? Um, the worst comment, I think, and constantly, I still get it. I still get, you're still young. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, but it's not working. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm young, but it, I'm not the youngest, but um, it's not working. So there's obviously, you know, or they say, um, you know, it'll happen, you just need to relax or, um, you know, uh, rely on the higher powers and things like that and you're just like, well, it's not working. Nothing to, I need, I need medical intervention for this to work. Like that's, trying to explain that to people is frustrating mm-hmm. when they say, oh, you just need to go on a holiday or you just need to get drunk or, you know, you just need to do all these things. <laughs> Um, and I'm like, no, I need medical intervention to be able to have a child. Um, that's probably the worst, actually. I haven't had any super um, bad comments. Probably at work, um, yeah, when they say, you don't look injured, you're not sick, I don't know why you can't do anything. Um, the whole, that's medical advice, it's not, it's not rules, like, you even though the doctor says you, you're still capable of doing it, I can't see anything wrong with you, you haven't got broken legs, type that, that being bad, I think. Yeah. You know, and I don't, I physically look okay, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the worst. 
relaxing, like always. They're saying, just relax. Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, no, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I can't just relax. No. What so. sort of, like, advice would you have then for the support people of people going through treatment? What could they do differently rather than um, those comments? My support would be, or my advice would be, go with your gut instinct. If you know something's not right, then I think generally there's something not right. Mm. Um, So if you feel like your specialist isn't doing all that they can, um, investigate, push, uh, seek alternative um, solutions. And my support people... I would probably give the best advice for the support people would be to not necessarily ask about the process, um, but just ask how are you doing every once in a while, not ask about IVF itself, just like how are you going more than anything. I think that's the one thing that I don't get is, I said this to my mum the other day actually, I said, mum, I don't get a lot of, how are you coping? How are you doing? I get a lot of how is IVF? What stage are you at? Um, when's the next cycle start? When's the next transfer? When's this? When's that? But I don't get how are you coping? Mm. Yep. So I think that's what I would, the advice I would give to to support people. Just ask how everyone is going, <laughs> including including partners as well, obviously. Yep. I, I should probably ask Bodie that question a lot more than I should, than I have. Yeah. I yeah. think asking, like, how do you even answer that question? How is IVF? Yeah. Yeah, I get that so often. <laughs> it's great. Thanks for asking. Yeah. We're going out for a yeah. wine later. Like, yeah. Like, it's really, it's a really vague question and I'm just like, okay, what part? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so. my gosh. Um, well, I think, is there anything else you'd like to ask? No. Yeah. No. Is there anything you wanted to add, Shannon? Um... No, I think that's everything. I think that's my whole last 10 years in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today. That's okay. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like listening to the podcast and would like to share your story, we'll pop the link in the show notes. Be sure to hit subscribe so when we release new episodes, it lands straight into your listen now. If you could also leave us a review for the show, that would be so appreciated. No words are needed, just stars. If you're on the Apple app, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and tap to rate. This makes a massive difference to our show's visibility and helps us get our show out and about to others experiencing fertility treatment. IVF Tales is an independent production made by Amy and I. Music is by Vlad Galushenko. You can join us wherever you get your podcasts.